welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, former chronic illness sufferer turned trusted health practitioner. My passion is helping people to identify and address the root causes of their symptoms through my online business, Viva Natural Health. If you're struggling with confusing or stubborn symptoms that just won't go away despite your best efforts, then you're in the right place. If I can heal from a long list of symptoms and conditions, including cystic acne, hair loss, severe food reactions, and brain fog, then you can heal too. Stay tuned for weekly episodes that share expert guest interviews, Q&A, and solo episodes that are all intended to help you wherever you're at on your healing journey. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. We have an expert guest today and an interview with Dr. Eric Balkovich. I interviewed him years ago now. It was back, I released it in May 2020, but I think we spoke several months before that. And that one is episode 71 and it was called How to Identify and Address Cellular Hypothyroidism. And back then he was in the works of creating his book. And in the episode, we mentioned how it was going to be released like very soon, but it actually only got released this summer, so 2022. But it was worth the wait. He actually covers in the episode today why it took so long. And he actually made many different changes to his approach to the writing, which I found very interesting and honest of him. But... If you're not sure who Dr. Eric is, I will just give you a little overview now. So he is the owner and founder of Rejuvagen, a functional medicine clinic in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. He's a nationally recognized speaker and educator on various health-related topics, including thyroid physiology, biophysiology, detox, oxidative stress, methylation, and chronic illness. And he's been in private practice since 1996. He is a certified nutrition specialist, a certified functional medicine practitioner. He's board certified in integrative medicine, along with being a licensed chiropractor in Pennsylvania. He actually started off in medicine, but then moved to holistic health and chiropractics after going through a car accident. He shares more about his story in episode one. I highly recommend listening to this first because we cover more about the science of the thyroid and more about lab testing and numbers and all of that whereas in today's episode we go a little bit deeper and it's kind of like a part two now that his book's out and I've got time to read through it I made sure not to repeat the same questions again Dr Eric is also the co-host of the Thyroid Answers podcast and this podcast focuses on answering the pressing questions those with chronic hypothyroid symptoms can't get answers answered elsewhere He has educational videos on Vimeo and YouTube. He's made it his mission to change the way that medicine looks at hypothyroidism. And his new book, The Thyroid Debacle, which was co-authored with Dr. Kelly Holderman, another practitioner that I've interviewed and we'll link in the podcast notes below as well. But his aim was to address problems with the conventional and current allopathic model, even the functional medicine approach to hypothyroidism and also give you plenty of solutions to walk away with and start implementing. It's now available to purchase. In today's episode, we did a bit of an overview, the importance of addressing the thyroid holistically, 
how something called the cell danger response is massively linked to hypothyroidism and many other conditions as well. The impacts of stress, both external stress, but also the stress that we can do to ourselves on our health journey in trying to find the problem, the root cause, researching for hours and hours. We've both been there. So he touches on his experience with clients and how sometimes asking them to do less and take less supplements and take a step back can actually move the needle for them. The stress of different forms of exercise and different forms of anaerobic and aerobic exercise and which one is going to be best for you if you're trying to overcome health issues. We speak about how the thyroid impacts the immune system both ways. So when you have an underactive thyroid, how you're more at risk of certain immune system imbalances. But then when you have immune system problems, you can develop Hashimoto's, etc. It's a two-way street. Very interestingly, we speak more about hypoxia and breathing. He only touched on this in the first episode, so I wanted to learn a little bit more. But I have a full episode on this with Dr. Michael Gelb. It's episode number 65 on dental health, oral health, and how mouth breathing at night could actually be driving the cell danger response, put your body into stress and could be causing you to wake up in the night to go to the bathroom, which many of you will be experiencing. And the importance of clean air, clean food, clean water, which are my absolute foundationals, especially long-term as maintenance once you've done the bulk of the healing work. But we were chatting about mold before we press record And I was just sharing since I last spoke to him, I had my whole mold journey experience. And he said that he's been obviously aware of it and working with mold, but he doesn't put the blame fully on mold. And I was like, I completely agree with you. I think it's a a big factor. It's overlooked for many people, but there's also the people who like just place all the emphasis on mold. And I fell into this camp for myself when I first found out that I had an issue. I was like, this is the answer. This is the cause of all of my issues. Once I fix mold, everything's going to be fine. Completely forgetting about all of the other ways that I was wrecking my health and have done for the past few, for the years prior to that. So we have a similar stance on mold. We talk about iron and how he believes a lower ferritin level is actually a good sign of health and how a higher ferritin, like we're usually taught to aim for, could actually be a sign of oxidative stress and inflammation. So lots of interesting subjects here. And it was great to catch up with him again. Um, And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello again, Dr. Eric. Thank you for joining me for a second time. Well, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, we have more to talk about. I'm sure that you're never out of content for ideas. You have your own own podcast that you talk about thyroid all the time. And yesterday I spent time looking back over the last episode that we did and making sure that we're not going to cover the same things again. So um, just a reminder, if you haven't listened to part one of this interview, go back. It was episode number 70, and it was released in May 2020, which seems like a lifetime ago, but also about two minutes now that we're on the call together. Mm -hmm. And a lot has happened in the world since that as well. And I was just wondering, with your book, even your book was meant to be, we were talking about it on the episode, like the book's going to be released shortly and then it's been like another two years has that mainly been because of all of the craziness in the world yeah um we went through a lot of changes after that we changed um publishers when this crazy thing came out called covid (laughs) obviously that changed some things in the publishing world as well and the publisher at the time said hey we're gonna shelve this for a bit and i was 
uh, and Kelly and I had a conversation, my co Kelly, my co-author, um, and we said, Hey, we don't want to wait, you know, another year or two years for this book to come out. Let's just get, take it back and we'll figure this out. And it still took two years and another publisher and rewriting <laughs> it. But I think it was a good, you know, even though we got to the point that, uh, definitely I got to the point that I was ready to divorce it by the time we were, you know, it's finally ready. The delays and the change allowed uh, a lot of change in the book. Um, and I think the time, the initial time of the book, we were, there was more of a angriness, I think, towards allopathic medicine. Um, and by having that delay, we kind of, kind of took some of that out and realized that, hey, we, we're trying to build a bridge here and not create animosity. And medical physicians are doing what they're trained to do. And while we may not agree that it's the best strategy from a functional medicine approach, that's really not their approach. Their approach is to diagnose a, a thyroid disease and manage it. And that's okay. There are people that don't want to do a more functional approach. There are people that just want to be able to take their medication. And for some people, they take their medication and they feel awesome. Um, so we need that approach, but that then gives room uh, for another approach, which is functional. what functional medicine should be is uh, the, I, especially in the world of hypothyroidism or thyroid dys dysfunction is the ability to come in and say, okay, we know there's damage to the thyroid gland, but why is there damage? occurring and what can we do to reduce what's causing the damage to the gland and we also know that there's a large percentage of people who don't do a great job converting t4 to t3 and we wanted to and we need to f help people understand why that's occurring and i think to some degree there's a problem in the functional and integrative community where we tell people that they've lost the ability to convert T4 to T3 versus this is probably an adaptive response to some type of excessive stress load. And that makes a big difference because people, if they're, if they're thought that they can't do it anymore, then the only solution is to give T3. And that in itself creates a roller coaster of problems for a lot of people. And if we switch that to, Hey, this is adaptive physiology, your body's not converting T4, T3 for an adaptive reason, then we just have to look for the reason. And when we do find the reason, then you all, all of a sudden you start to say, hey, I've addressed the reason. Now I'm converting T4 to T3. Now my thyroid gland is able to make more T4. I'm able to convert it and I feel better and my tissue response is better. And that's really what we why we wrote the book and really what we want people to understand is that instead of looking at the physiology and saying, oh, it's broken, the body woke up one day and, and doesn't realize that that's my thyroid gland, that I think we have to get rid of that model. Yeah. And I, I love that you emphasize the wording, the language, um, how you talk to people about it. Um, and it's, the body is protecting you at the end of the day, slowing you down so that you stop like behaving in a certain way, over-exercising, some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. And I also love that you're like really honest about the book and saying how it started off as like really angry attack. It's kind of like when people say, if you want to have a conversation with someone, like write it, write out an email, get all of your thoughts out and then sleep on it, come back the next day and then maybe edit it a little bit. Yeah. And you know what? It was nice to, I, we, I had a chance to give a bunch of non-functional medicine people 
a chance to read it. A couple and some of my family members who were just people who, you know, just lay people and they're like, you sound angry. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, and uh, I was like, man, okay. Uh, I, you know, at first I was like, what are you talking about? But um, then after thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's soften this up. Um, and I think it, it wound up being a better book. I mean, that the book has been rewritten probably, I don't know, five times in that two year span where we just keep kept rewriting chapters, you get it back and you re kind of rewrite it again. And, um, but at some point you just have to say, you know what, I'm tired of reading this and I got it. I just have to say enough's enough. Cause every time you would, I would get it back from the editor. I would be like, well, I've learned something else. Let me add another yeah. piece I'm in here. And then learning journey for you. Yeah. And so, but it's funny now that by the time it was the last read through, I was like so sick of reading it. Well, I don't but care then if one, there's mistakes and the errors, like just let yeah. it go. And then now I have, you know, I have my book on my desk. I've highlighted my own book, right? And so it's it's one of those things where I think it's a great reference tool. And there's things that I know I said in the book that I'm like, man, I had a nice, I said something in the book that I liked the way I said it. I got to go back and find where I, where I said it and yeah. use that again, you know? You so I'm happy with, I'm happy with the way it came out. I'm happy with it as well. Your your team very kindly sent me a copy, so I've got it here. Oh, in the nice! Buckle, and I was reading through it, and even I was learning things. And I've heard you talk like for hours and hours and hours on your podcast, and like I said, I've spoken to you before, but it's still packed with information. And I think it's great because even with my clients, I sometimes they come to me and they're very angry against the allopathic system because they've been let down, and I was like that too because I got missed for so many things they weren't testing things that i was asking for they told me that diet has zero impact on my symptoms which is just ridiculous to think of but it's nice to come to that middle ground where you you can turn to them when needed if you get in a car accident they're amazing if you need a life-saving surgery that's what they're there for so it's it's nice to have like that bridge and i think your book does a really good job at that and i really enjoyed reading it well, I appreciate it. And we, it's, it's a delicate, we tried to make sure that somebody who just, who doesn't know anything about what's going on could pick up the book and say, and be able to read through it and get something from it versus it's just written for the medical community. So it's too heavy for somebody to read, or it's just written for the lay community. And it's almost too simple for a clinician, right? Mm -hmm. So we tried to find the blend. I hope we did that. And then it's I like think the, the thyroid, other thyroid guidebook, like everything you could possibly want to know, um, all of the science and then all of the practical tips as well. Yeah. And I, I think I did, I was asked, uh, I got a comment from, I've had this comment from a couple people that said, how come you didn't tell us like what supplements to use? And I'm like, we did that on purpose. That would, because... have been me, that would have been me five years ago, like buy a mm -hmm. book and then just go straight to the back, like mm -hmm. searching for like what doses of magnesium I should take. Right. And the problem with that, as you've learned, right, is that you wind up reading a book, adding supplements, read another book, add some more supplements, read another book, add some more supplements. Before you know it, you're taking 15, 20 different supplements a day and you don't know, you think you need them all because some you read it in a book. 
but that you may not need any of them, right? Because they may not be strategically helping you improve. And that's usually what I tell most people when I start with them. It happened yesterday. My last client of the day yesterday is taking 18 different supplements, right? And so like, what can you help me with? Uh, well, number thing, number one thing I want to help you with is we're going to start leaning out the load of supplements you're taking and be more strategic, fewer things, layer them in, get rid of them as we've used them for what we need to do. Because I just see too many people in, in my world where they come in and they're taking 10, 15, 20 different bottles of supplements, let alone three or four or five or six capsules of each bottle per day, you're getting quickly up to, you know, I had one person taking about 200 capsules per that day. per meal, isn't it? Yeah. And they're a, they're a functional medicine practitioner, right? And so uh, I think they were angry at first when I said, we're going to get rid of all these. And they're like, I need them all. I'm like, if you need this many supplements to be sick, you don't need any. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I want to, that's the big reason. So, but what we put in there and you talked about it was, what are the, the things that almost anybody can do to start changing and improving their health and quality of life? And each one of those chapters in part three could be a book in it itself, right? So I did have a, a, a dentist give me, a mess text me and say, hey, you left out uh, a whole bunch of stuff on obstructive sleep apnea. I'm like, right, because <laughs> that, that's not this book. I ex talked about respiration and breathing, but I, I can't write the depth. And I'm like, yeah, if someone resonates with like the sleep sleep part, then they could learn a little bit more about that from somewhere else, but they can't expect yeah. one person to completely cover everything, every possible option. Right. So, but we gave in, I think we hit it on all the key pieces of the health foundations that somebody could say, oh, I need to learn more about breathing than what's here. Great. Pick up Wim Hof's books, pick up uh, Buteco breathing techniques, right? Pick up some of the, pick up Nestor's book on, mm -hmm. called Breath, right? So there's a ton of books that are out there really detailed on each topic, this book is meant to give you the foundation. Like these are the key aspects of health that you need to focus on and probably need to focus on before you start considering which load of supplement bottles I need to start putting in because most people think, Hey, I can just take an antibiotic or a probiotic and a probiotics, a probiotic and don't, doesn't understand the depth or any B vitamin is going to be any B12 is good. Well, no, they're not right. And there's, Oh, all folic acid is the same. Well, folic acid is a type of B9, but it may not be the type that you need. And especially uh, given some of the things that we can learn about the physiology and the chemistry. So it is, I think it, it is not just a book that's going to help somebody with thyroid physiology, but it's a book that's going to help somebody understand what are the things I need to work on just to be healthy in general. Yeah. Because when the body's healthy, everything starts to work. Right. You can't, you can't just treat the thyroid without improving other things. Right. And that's, I think that's a key distinction between what allopathic medicine is and what functional medicine should not be. Uh, and even though a lot of people come to see me because I talk a lot about thyroid physiology or talk through the lens of thyroid physiology, um, 
I am not a thyroid specialist. I don't consider myself a thyroid specialist. I consider myself a really good generalist because somebody who's going to, in functional medicine, can't be just focused on thyroid physiology and help someone. They have to understand the tie to gut physiology, how respiration changes thyroid physiology, how gut flora changes, how thyroid hormone plays a role in, and is tied into sexual hormones and their regulation, right? So you have to under, be a really good generalist. Not It's great to know a lot about thyroid physiology, but if that's all you know, I don't think you're really doing functional medicine at the core. And I think it's great as well because you and Dr. Kelly, the co-author, you've both been working with clients and patients for years and years now. And it's not like you're just reading the research and then writing a book about it. You, you know that sometimes something in the study might work, but in the real world, it might not be like, easy to implement or it might give the complete opposite response because people's bodies are completely different. Absolutely. And I I had a functional medicine practitioner that um, had a, we just had an initial consultation the other day and we went through her blood work and um, I kind of showed her all the patterns. Okay, here's the issues. Here's the patterns of problems. And she's, she's like, but what I learned about in my functional medicine training didn't explain it that way. I'm like, right. Functional medicine training, when you're going through that initial base training, is like med school, like it's kind of like chiropractic school. It gives you some foundational stuff, but a lot of the stuff that we learn, these especially early on, you learn a lot of protocols, and they're great at a seminar to say, "Hey, here's the protocol: this supplement for this, this supplement for that." But that doesn't really work yeah. that way. I, I tried right? that like a couple of times, and it never worked out. No, and she had a, a organic acid panel done right an organic organic acid test done and then there, there was the recommendations based on the algorithm and she's like i followed all those recommendations and i didn't feel better i'm like right because that's not unique to you like that's just saying generated report yeah i said these things now be fair she's new to functional medicine right but she learned an organic acid test it's a fantastic test and you can learn this and here's the nutrients that are deficient and she just started taking the nutrients that are deficient i'm like that's, I said that they put that's out there for somebody who's just learning to kind of get an idea of maybe what to do, but that never works. You, what you need to do is really start to learn. Once you start doing this stuff for a bit, you'll start to learn how to interpret that organic acid test based on signs and symptoms, based on blood work. How do these things integrate with each other? And then you'll go from, oh, I need all these micronutrients down to, oh, there's a couple things here I need to do strategically and you'll get a much, much better result. Yeah, I'm like, why is she deficient in all of those nutrients in the first place? Like, she's right. not absorbing, then she's not even gonna absorb the supplements. Right. Exactly. Right. If you see them that nutrient deficient, you have to ask: Is this a person who's not consuming a very healthy diet, or is this a person who can't absorb mm -hmm. the stuff? They can. They're not breaking their food down. They're not digesting it. They're not absorbing it appropriately. That's. Those are the better questions to ask. But as a new practitioner, she's not there yet. Right. Yeah. And with your your help now, she will she'll learn what's needed. Yeah, and that's. I, that's a big part of what I do with my clients, whether they're practitioners and I have a lot of those, but uh, if just lay people, I want them to understand their blood chemistry panel. Like, Hey, if you are, if your doctor tells you you're hypothyroid or you're not hypothyroid, 
you should be able to look at these these other tests and get an indication of, hey, I don't have enough tissue, a thyroid hormone at the tissue level, at my liver, at my adrenal gland. And so you can see that even though the blood levels may be normalized by taking a bunch of hormones, the tissue levels aren't normalized. And we can see those patterns. And then you'll understand that you know, even though he said that, I know I still have an issue with my liver getting enough thyroid hormone because my cholesterol is high, my LDL is high. I know I have a problem at my adrenal gland because my I can't make uh, cortisol. My cortisol is low. Why would my cortisol be low? Well, guess what? You need T3, your adrenal gland, to bring that cholesterol in and into the mitochondria and make it into cortisol. So do you need more cortisol stimulation? Uh, no. How about we figure out why the adrenal gland is being downregulated? And is there any additional like testing or has your approach changed at all since you started writing the book to when it was released? Like Any new research or data that's come out about thyroid health? Uh, there's every day there's another paper, right? So it's all about trying to just tie pieces together. So um, definitely there's more on there's more on the horizon. Uh, and Kelly and I are in the process at the moment of, of putting together a, um, a clinician training program. So we'll be do filming the end of um, October. So we'll ho hopefully have that out with some, that'll have some, some more advanced stuff that's in, than, than is in the book so that people can get an idea of these patterns. And that's what I really want people to, uh, physicians to, especially to understand is, Hey, TSH looks good. T4, T3 may look good in the bloodstream, but what do the tissue patterns tell us? The tissue patterns are going to be the indicator of what the, of whether the person's converting that T4 to T3 to cell level, or if that the T3 is really, uh, really reflects what's going on in the cell. And especially if they're on T3 therapy, a lot of times people think, Hey, if I'm on T3 therapy and my T3 is normal in the blood, um, I'm good. And uh, no. it was that easy. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was. I wish it was. But it's not, you know, I get a lot of clients that have seen some of the, um, you know, thyroid experts um, who have told them you can't convert T4 to T3. And they're on, I've got a gal right now when she started seeing me, I think she was taking 150 micrograms of T4 and 80 micrograms of T3 oh. per day. Um, and she still has a thyroid gland, um, mm -hmm. and she feels awful. And I'm mm -hmm. like, because you're taking about two times the amount of thyroid hormone that you would make in the day for yeah. your size. And so you're essentially shutting down thyroid gland production. Mm -hmm. It'll never produce anything. And you're good. shutting down the peripheral conversion. So I understand, I understand somebody who thought, Hey, more is better, more is better, more is better, but it, that's not the way the physiology works. Mm -hmm. And what about, I've stopped looking at the research with COVID and lockdowns. I've tried to blanket out my mind um, mm -hmm. since everything's kind of calmed down a little bit. Has there been any research in particular about like long COVID and thyroid or anything about maybe um, mortality rates or is someone at higher risk with thyroid issues? There's a bunch of, um, there's a bunch of thought process and hypotheses on it. Uh, there's a number of papers talk about increased risk of COVID with somebody who's already 
has a hypothyroid condition, there's a higher, there's association between COVID and developing um, hypothyroidism. And, but I think it still goes back to the same things I, I talk about in the book. If you are, um, if you get an infection and that is, is going to initiate kind of a cell stress, cell danger response. And so anytime we get sick, there's a level of, of tissue hypothyroidism goes on. If you're a person who doesn't have a lot of underlying load on their system, you might get COVID and recover and have a, like a temporary tissue hypothyroidism and then come back. Um, but if you already have a massive load, right, then that adding another virus, adding a virus or um, to that load may push you into an excessive response and it may be hard to get out of that. Kind of like you or we talked before we got on, like, hey, uh, I got exposed to mold and now I got more chronically ill. Was it just a mold thing or was it that that was the, that added to the load I already had? Um, and that was the reason. So I, I think there's literature, the, the literature is interesting. Um, what about the other way? Like how does, is someone with hypothyroid more at risk of picking up viruses and infections? Like how does the thyroid support the immune system? Uh, I don't, well, there's a huge tie between the thyroid physiology and the immune system. But I think what we see in patient, pay, people with hypothyroidism is it depends. And so it depends on what's the state of their immune system. So Cyrex Labs has a, a test called the lymphocyte map test. And I think that's telling um, when we look at somebody's lymph map test to see what's the balance in their immune system. Are, do they have higher levels of natural killer cells or lower levels of natural killer cells? Are they Th1 dominant? Or are they Th2 dominant? Like what's going on with their Treg cells? So the state that they're in probably plays a role to their susceptibility. And we can even look at secretory IgA. What's the role there? If they have, have an already hyperactive secretory IgA system, they may be less, they may not get COVID a significant COVID response because the immune system is hyperactive and maybe fighting it off right away. Or they could have a reduced secretory IgA system. And so that virus has an easier time getting into the system and creating a problem. And then what happens with it is really based on what's happening with that natural killer cells and the rest of the um, T and B cell physiology, especially that T cell physiology. Mm -hmm. So I think what we see is going to be dependent. So if you think about the secretory IgA system, right, that's the, that's like the Marines, right? It's the, the four, it's the defense. It's a kind of our first line defense of all of our mucous membranes, right? Nose, mouth, oral cavity, lungs. And um, if it's pretty functional or overactive, it may be killing off the virus right away, not getting a chance. The downside to having sometimes that hyperactive uh, secretory IgA system is it may become overactive to even things like foods, right? Mm -hmm. And now we can get a lot of food reactivity or food sensitivity. Um, so it's a balance between you want, if, it, if that secretory IgA system is too weak, then you may get more bacteria, more viruses that get into the system and the immune system doesn't um, get activated appropriately and then we can have a more significant uh response in our system from those organisms and so i think it really that. depends 
Yeah, the natural killer cells and secretory IgA for me a few years ago were really low. So that's why I was picking up all of these infections and I had candida overgrowth and parasite infections that wouldn't clear. Um, and it's because my immune system wasn't strong enough. But I think mold did have a massive effect on my health. But we were talking before and, and how for a while I, I blamed everything on mold, but then forgot about all of the other ways that I mistreated my body and wasn't eating good. I was eating gluten and I was sensitive to it. I was on the birth control pill for several years. Um, I was trying to lose weight by over-exercising and not eating enough food, but I blamed everything on mold. And healing from mold didn't make a huge difference in my symptoms, but now I've become much more balanced in my opinion. And I know that a healthy, strong body should be able to tolerate small amounts of mold. You obviously don't want to be living in, in a building that's got mushrooms and mold hanging from the ceiling, but a lot of clients who I work with, and even for me, the mold isn't visible. And mm -hmm. it's not that they're living in like terrible conditions. It's, it's small amounts of mold or maybe the way that the buildings are made and created these days, maybe humidity levels are getting too high. Are you sick of trying to guess what's wrong with you and instead would just love to see exactly which imbalances you have? Well, great news. My brand new course, I'm Balance, is launching this Wednesday, the 1st of March, giving you the opportunity to test your body with my favorite functional lab test, the Her Tissue Mineral Analysis, also known as the HTMA. I know you might be struggling with your energy, your skin, hormones, or gut, but did you know that mineral imbalances could actually be a cause of those things? Meaning that if you don't balance your minerals, your other efforts won't fully work or give you long lasting results. I love the HTMA as it's a super accurate and accessible way to see what's going on with your body. So many of us have mineral imbalances and issues with heavy metals these days due to things like food and air quality, but you need to know exactly which minerals and metals you're exposed to because two people with the exact same set of symptoms can have completely different results. This is why I created this test and treat option with Fine Balance. I wanted to get this test out to more people and also give you the tools to be able to interpret and understand the results and then make the necessary changes to rebalance things naturally. I only have so many hours in a day to see clients, so this will allow you to get all of my top mineral balancing strategies without having to work with me one-on-one. -on -one. I should also mention that you get a complimentary HTMA test to use as part of this course. I'll only be opening this course up a few times a year. So if you want to join as soon as possible, doors will open this Wednesday, the 1st of March, 2023, until the end of Sunday, the 12th of March. Plus to celebrate the first launch, I will be offering 50 pounds off for the first few days, making the investment just 297 pounds. This is the lowest it's ever gonna be. Check the link in the show notes from Wednesday onwards to sign up or if you're listening at a later date, keep your eyes on my website and Instagram for when it's open for enrollment again. Okay, let's get back to the show. You did mention the importance in your book of clean air and clean food and clean water, eating organic, filtering your water. So you said that you spoke to someone about mold the other day and have changed your opinion a little bit on testing and your approach to that. Would you share a little bit more about what you covered? Yeah, I think in the originally we, you know, I, I've always kind of looked at mold issues like we're all exposed to mold and you've got, you can have two people living in the same home and one is 
devastated by it and the other person is um doesn't seem to even be bothered by it right and so you have this and it's like pollen in the air right like oh it's it's out it's pollen that's the problem well i'm standing in the same pollen i'm breathing the same pollen why am i not as as aggravated by it and that comes down to the my my immune system right compared to your immune system and how it it's responsiveness or hyper responsiveness. So when it comes to mold, I think that that's a big, that can be a big potential issue, which is when we're thinking about what's going on with mold, one of those things we want to take into consideration is why is somebody overly responsive to it, right? And that comes down to the immune, that really comes down to the immune system. The next thing we need to consider is how do we assess it? And so uh, early on, you know, we had these urine mycotoxin tests and um, that was the test that, you know, everybody was kind of initially doing like, hey, do, are we exposed to mycotoxins? And we do that test. And I did those tests as well. And the problem we I have with the test and I, you know, when everybody, when you're learning about it, you're doing it, you're like, this is awesome that we have it. But if you're exposed to mold, is it good or bad to see mold metabolites in your urine, right? And some people would say, well, if you have a lot of urine metabolites of mold, that means you have mold toxicity and that's compromising your health. Well, I don't know if that's true. Mm. What's the body's job if it's exposed to, if you're exposed to mold, you're going to get toxins and what your body should do is eliminate it. Isn't that what's showing up in your urine? Does it depend on like the species or how elevated they are or how many of them are present? Well, that's a great question, right? But if you're exposed and you're inhaling spores or you're inhaling, you're getting toxins into the system and you don't see it, which is the bigger issue? Mm. I know I'm exposed and I don't see anything showing up in my urine or I, I know I'm exposed and I see stuff showing in my urine. What would be the bigger concern? Well, mine was to like me, off it's... the charts really high and I was like mm -hmm. quite sick. So it, it's good that I was detoxing and getting it out, but it was also showing me that my home, even though it looked fine, it wasn't healthy to be living there. Maybe mm -hmm. whilst I was healing, um, maybe I would so, be fine if I healed somewhere else and came back. Right. So it tells you that you're exposed. Okay. But if it's negative and you're living in that environment, you know you're still exposed. Yeah. So a negative test in an, in an environment where you know you've got good mold exposure should tell you, hey, I've got problems with my detoxification yeah. pathways. And this is, I just went over this with somebody who was in living in a, an extremely moldy environment, not feeling well. And I've just reviewed all his labs the other day. And he was like, I, it's, he said, what's ironic was I was chronically ill, but my urine myco tests were negative. And then now I'm out of that environment and I just had a test done and the values are high. So I guess my new, he's like, my new environment must be loaded with mold. So we yeah. just had somebody come in. They can't find mold anywhere. I said, listen, you're doing a bunch of things to work on your, on your GI track and you're doing a bunch of healthy things and you change some of those things. That stuff that's showing up in your urine is probably your body releasing those sign. things. Yeah. And so it's the same. So I'm like, that, that's a good thing. So I'm not opposed to people doing urine mycotoxin testing, but I think we've got to be careful when we're assessing it. Right. And so 
because you can have a husband and wife, one of them is ill and it seems like they have mold related illness and their test maybe is it is got like low levels. I've seen this where they've got lower levels mm-hmm. and the spouse who's healthy, right, has high levels and they're like, oh, well, it can't be mold because my levels are low and his levels are high, right? It can't, that can't be the reason I'm ill. I'm like, no, it can be the reason you're ill, but you're not releasing that stuff. You're in the same environment. So if you have exposure and you're ill and you see it in your urine, then that's a great reason to go check your environment, right? What, where is it coming from? Maybe I need to remediate it. If you're, if you do those, like for the, for the spouse, he's like, I'm not, why am I not sick? I don't think we need to check the house. I said, well, there's a different piece here that you, that he wasn't understanding because he didn't want to spend the money on the remediation. But I said, your, your spouse is chronically ill and there's a different, there's exposure and there's loss of tolerance. So Cyrex Labs has a test that looks at loss of tolerance, right? Now they're making antibodies to stachybotrys, aspergillus, right? Um, Penicillium, right? So those things that may not be problematic for one partner, that other partner, as soon as they're exposed to it, their immune system is reacting to it, right? So there's the big difference, right? Is that have I lost some tolerance to this stuff? So it doesn't matter where I go when I get exposed to it, my immune system is going to be like, whoa, flare up, right? So I think there's, if we want to know if mold is really a kind of a primary focus of our issue, something like a Cyrex test is going to say, hey, your immune system is negatively, or I don't know, however you want to say it, positively or negatively responding to this. Um, But just seeing urine mold toxins metabolites in the urine doesn't necessarily mean that that is the thing that's driving the process does that make sense yeah because some of it can be contaminated by food even if they've had coffee and like bread before and the grains are contaminated coffee is like one of the highest contaminated foods as well it it could just be from the foods that they've eaten so i try and like reduce i use the test with some clients but sometimes you can just tell based on what they describe their home to be like and the types of symptoms that they have sometimes you just know and you can save them 300 pounds on doing a test and um, because it comes back to it again you can't treat a lab test you have to look at the health history and it, it's not just mold that's contributed to how they're feeling yeah absolutely and you know it's, I, I was looking at this person sent me their organic acid test right and there's like i have i have all these fungal markers that are elevated i'm like yeah but that might be from your food. What were you eating prior to the test, right? And so when we went through what they were eating prior to the test, I'm like, this could just be from food. And um, I said, so if you if your home was checked, nothing's there. And this you do your organic acid and you've got these things. It may be from food. You did it, that person, the same person did a GI test and there's no yeast or on the test or, or other fungal things on the test that were t- evaluated for. So I'm like, it's probably food. Mm-hmm. So let's just clean up the diet a little bit. Let's put less concern because you know, that can create a ton of anxiousness and anxiety chasing something that may not actually be the primary thing. And now you neglect all the things that are 
much simpler to address, right? And so you forget, like as you said, the house, and then they're not sleeping, and then oh. they're exhausted, and then they can't go to the gym, and then they're not moving the body, and then they're not detoxing, and it's just like a vicious cycle. I, and it and it creates, you know, people say, "Well, you're just anxious." Well, yes, but we worry, right? And then as we worry, we increase our fight or flight hormones. And now those fight or flight hormones, especially if there's compromised detoxification, don't clear real quickly. And now they kind of drive the process. And as we get more anxious, we, you know, it just becomes a vicious cycle. So we see this with a lot of clients who are sometimes their own search or their own ex- sometimes excessive. I don't know how to say it, but their their own search or their own drive to try and find the thing, this this thing creates so much stress and anxiety that it is become it becomes part of the load that's causing their health yeah. issues. Does that make like, sense? Yeah, like they're constantly telling themselves that something's wrong, like they're yeah. sick, something's harming them. They must find it, and that is so stressful. It doesn't need to be a physical stress; it could be imagined, perceived stress. Mm-hmm. And once that limbic system is wound up, it can get plasticized really easily. And now that just becomes how they behave, how they act. And then they might, maybe they wind up with a diagnosis of something like mm-hmm. OCD or chronic anxiety or some, uh, or some I'd other say, disorder. Like I, that. Had, I had like mold PTSD from mm-hmm. finding out about that and moving and just like not wanting my parents to come around and visit my new apartment in case they contaminated my furniture. It was honestly crazy um, but I honestly just wanted to get better I was just so yeah. desperate after all of those years mm-hmm. I, I then thought mold was the missing piece that was the answer to everything and it, it did make a significant improvement um, but me not seeing my parents because I didn't want them to contaminate my house that was going to affect my health because mm-hmm. I'm like, isolating myself not going out to visit anyone because I just wanted to heal in my little bubble yeah, and you can't live in that bubble, right? Because you're going every time you go outside, you're getting exposed to mold, right? Every time somebody, you know, comes to visit you, right? Some things that you brought. So it becomes down to how do we make this body stronger, more resilient, right? So that you can tolerate more of that stuff. And you might, if you know that mold, hey, I'm 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 I've lost tolerance to mold or I'm excessively exposed and that's creating some increased stress to my tissues. You got to address it. But we also I don't think it's healthy to live in chronic fear because that creates a ton of stress and anxiety. And now your emotional fitness goes in the tank and you're only as healthy as the weakest link. Right. So you've got to we've got to be cautious and make sure that we're not creating another in an effort to try and find the one thing that we're not creating problems in a whole bunch of other categories. Hey, I'm not sleeping because I'm staying up late. I'm on the computer all the time. We're searching, 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 hard searching, right? I'm not eating well because I'm so busy researching, right? <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm not talking to anybody, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just searching, right? And so we have to be really cautious. I can see people like following along. They're like, yeah, they're calling me it right now. <laughs> but I, listen, I know how no, it is, there, right? So we can, yeah, we can I know how that. it is. Well, you know how it is. Even when you're, even when I'm researching something, you know, I've got eight tabs open on my computer from this morning, right? So I could easily lose three to four hours going down a rabbit hole, chasing the impact of 
vasopressin on the on the cellular physiology. No problem, right? So I totally get it. I totally understand <laughs> it. And I don't want to talk to anybody when I'm trying to do this. Hey, leave me alone. I'm in the, I'm in a deep dive here. But that's you got to be cautious with those things. And even like any practitioners listening, just be really careful how you talk to people about their symptoms and their health because just one thing that you say could stick with them forever. It's like where mm -hmm. people go to an, a conventional doctor and they can literally tell them that they're going to struggle to have children when they're, when they're grown up, even when they're 13 because they've got PCOS. Mm -hmm. And then they literally struggle with infertility partly because of the belief that that's what they're going to have. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think people would say, oh, you're just anxious, you know, whatever. What? Yeah. If you tell somebody you'll never have children, that's some people crazy, are going to be like, yeah. well, you want to bet? I, I'm going to prove you wrong. And the other people are going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to have kids. Mm -hmm. And they're going to live and manifest what goes on between the six inches of their ears. Especially when it's an authority figure telling them they believe doctors know mm -hmm. everything and will fix them, but you have to like fix yourself. And I, you know, I think the important thing is we, it was to, for all of us to realize and be humble is we really don't know that much. I mean, every day I learned something I didn't know yesterday. Um, and the things that we were told a decade ago, two decades ago, we're learning now aren't really true. The mm -hmm. whole serotonin depression thing, you see that, you know, we, how many people, how many millions of people have been medicated based on flood research and science, mm -hmm. right? How about the, hey, low fat, you know, fat makes well, you they fat, do it, right? They do it really sneakily, don't they? They like just mm -hmm. slowly change the guidelines. Mm -hmm. And I think they put with the cholesterol thing, cholesterol is no longer um, a nutrient or hormone of concern. They just like snuck that in there in the food, the food guidelines after years of telling us that red meat and eggs and butter are bad for our health. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's funny because they'll they'll stand up and stick the flag in the ground when they've got the new thing. This is it, blah, right? And then when it's oh, this was wrong. Yeah, it's oh, take What's the flag that? down. Oh, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and don't let anybody know. And we never said that, right? And yet, but those are the things. So anytime somebody says something, we have to have a little bit of okay. Maybe, right? Question everything. Yeah. And, and and there's a lot of things to question. Even in the functional medicine space, I question almost everything because I've learned a bunch of stuff. Some of it worked out well and some things don't work out. And you learn things uh, and you go, this doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. When, I, when people were telling me uh, and I, I was learning that, hey, reverse T3 blocks T3 receptors at the nucleus. And that's the problem. And that's why you need to give higher dose T3. I was like, I don't know that that makes sense. Initially, I thought it made sense. And then you start saying, well, okay, it doesn't seem, yeah, it does. They're not mirror images. Reverse T3 doesn't really bind with any high level affinity to nuclear receptors. Why are we telling people this stuff? But it just kept, and I kept trying to figure out where it came from. Mm. But it comes like the game of telephone, doesn't it? You just like yeah. people keep passing on the information and just repeating what they hear. Absolutely. And and unfortunately, it becomes truth, right? When it 
isn't really validated at all, but yet it keeps getting pushed on, pushed on, pushed on. And then sometimes at the, at the detriment of clients and, you know, I, I, talk about ferritin and right now in the, in the functional medicine community and you may have a different opinion too but i just had to talk to somebody yesterday and they're like my functional medicine doctor has me on iron because they said my ferritin level should be up in the 90s and i'm like based mm -hmm. on what yeah i saw that in your book you like it much much lower don't you well, yeah, based on scientific literature, Douglas Kell, who's from your side of the pond, is one of the premier uh, scientists in the world on iron physiology, and and there's a and there's agreement in the in their in his community that ferritin is a tissue protein, not a serum protein. So that when we see elevations in ferritin, that's indicative of tissue damage and inflammation, and so we shouldn't be trying to increase ferritin levels because that's a tissue storage protein, not a mm -hmm. serum protein. And I realized this early on because I learned it too. And so I would give everybody iron because everybody's ferritin was early on. It was, I was seeing a lot of people, their ferritin level was under 90. So I thought I had to give it to them. And when you give them a bunch of iron, when they don't need it, that increases oxidative stress and they don't do well and they don't feel well. And you give them dysbiosis in their bowel and mm -hmm. you create a whole bunch of issues. And I'm like, this is not making sense. I'm trying to get them. I should, they're, they're telling me they're worse and I'm making, I'm doing what I've learned. And then you start digging into the literature and you're like, Oh, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be driving it up. And then you, and now COVID made that evidently clear because they're looking at ferritin levels around over a hundred as an indicator of COVID infections mm -hmm. in women. So you go, oh, wait a minute. If 100 is where they're starting to go, well, maybe we have a COVID infection. Why are we trying to get people to 90? That's what we would right? call like 70 to 100. And I always knew that above, if it got too high, it can cause inflammation. But that in your ranges would be like through the roof. Yeah. And so when we, and if you look, if you consider being down at 25 for ferritin, almost everybody in functional medicine would probably say they're anemic. But are they? Well, let's look at the rest of their C mm -hmm. let's look at the rest of their iron panel. Let's look at their CBC and diff. Uh, if you really, if they have an anemia pattern, is it anemia inflammation or is it anemia of iron deficiency? And then we do have a test that'll differentiate that, which is your soluble transferrin receptor. So if you think that you have, you need to jack up somebody's uh, iron levels, because their ferritin's low, before you do that, consider running a soluble transferrin receptor test. If that's high, yeah, they have an iron deficiency. If it's not high, then their their cells are saturated with iron. So they don't need more iron. And that, you know, so there's things that we learn and we think are truth. And then as we start to, you know, just get deep, dig a little bit deeper, we go, you know what, that's not really that's a little bit of functional medicine myth and maybe we need to revise those things but i think it's important so if, as as the people who are doing it we could be wrong you know the person who's the client should be like okay i can take i i'd list you know follow advice but if it doesn't sound quite right consider that maybe it isn't mm -hmm. right and you can do a little bit of homework and research and say hmm eggs are bad for you because they have cholesterol does that make sense Hmm.
right? Even just like your intuition. I used it quite a lot through my healing journey and it can honestly like guide you so much more than what other people are saying. Absolutely. If you, if, you know, getting back to the iron, if you, if somebody says you, your ferritin's low, I'm going to give you a bunch of iron and you don't feel well on it. Mm -hmm. you, that's a good sign. That's probably not the right strategy. Yeah. Right. And I did a post on iron the other day. Cause I, I agree. I, I feel 25 might be low, but I might open to your experience with that. Um, because we are bombarded by iron through food, fortified foods. Um, and, you need certain nutrients to absorb iron as well. So it could be like a copper or vitamin A issue and it could be a B vitamin deficiency and um, not necessarily just iron. But someone commented, and I'm guessing people are thinking this as well, why do, let's say someone has really heavy periods and they have low ferritin, why would they then feel better if they took iron if iron's not the problem? Or do you agree that it could be iron in that situation? Oh, no, in that situation, absolutely, right? We don't have a great way of getting rid of iron. So that's where we have to look at our client, right? Is this a person who doesn't eat a lot of animal protein, right? They, they really, are, maybe they're vegetarian or vegan. And could if, they're, if their serum iron's low, their iron saturation's low, their ferritin's low, their CBC and diff may show an anemia pattern, um, then you run a soluble transferrin receptor and say, okay, this is a person who's not getting enough iron in their diet. That's their number one issue. And we need to improve that. And so let's get them if they can't because of their philosophical or emotional beliefs, they can't, they won't eat, uh, richer sources of iron. Then we got to get them supplemental iron, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if it's somebody who's got a heavy menstrual cycle and they're doing a lot of bleed, then what we need to do is say, okay, they have a great potential, for anemia because they got a super heavy blood loss and it's chronic. So they are a person who might be anemic. So what do we do? Let's run a soluble transferrin receptor test to confirm that they are anemic and let's put them on iron. I have some patients on iron now. I've got a woman who's, we, we know, we, I don't measure it, but she measures her flow volume every month. And because, and, you know, we started out and it was really high and now it's getting better, but because she bleeds so much, um, she and it's been going on for so long, she has a need for iron. So she's on some iron, okay? Um, but the vast majority of people, I don't think, have an iron deficiency unless they have a bleed yeah, somewhere. Risk, yeah, the risk factors. Right. So if if somebody was truly iron anemic, especially if it was a if it was a dude, mm -hmm. I would be going. Let's get that gut checked. Yeah, Let's find rare, out where, where, where's the blood going? You're eating yeah. animal protein every day. Um, where, where is your blood going? So mm -hmm. there, so I, this is one of those things where I talk about this in the book as well. You can't look at a value, one lab value and make a decision. You have to look for patterns of problems. And in that situation, if somebody's, if somebody had a ferritin level between 25 and 50 and everything else looked really good, I wouldn't be concerned about it at all. I'd be like, maybe that's okay for them, right? Yeah. There's no other inflammatory markers. They feel fantastic. CBC and differential is good. Their iron saturations within range. Their serum iron's good. I'm not worried at all, right? But if I start seeing that creeping up over in 40, 50, and now I see CRP is elevated, I know they got dysbiosis. Yeah. Uh, then I'm going to start to say, hey, that this is going to be potentially, this is going up probably. Liver's pumping out a bunch of ferritin to act as a scavenger molecule to start to 
clean up the free iron because if tissues are getting damaged, free iron is going to be released. What do organisms love as a fuel source? Iron is a primary fuel source. Matter of fact, we're always fighting the organisms for iron. They have tools to steal the iron from us and we have tools to keep it. Uh, that's one of the things that happened with COVID. Really important thing to consider is each individual and their situation and a value, a lab value, but whether it's ferritin or TSH, hey, my TSH is, is, is 4.5. Is that a problem? Well, it's lab high, but that may be appropriate. So is it, do I need to do something? I don't know. What's the rest of the panel show, mm -hmm. right? If their T4, free T4 was normal and their free T3 is low and their TSH is eight, uh, is up, is, is higher, I may say, whoa, I would wait and see that elevated TSH is going to drive more T4 to T3 conversion. So you may just be seeing a swing of what's going on. But then I also want to look at the rest of the thyroid panel, the rest of the blood panel and say, what do your lipids look like? Are you insulin resistant? Are you gaining weight? Right? So we want to see it. If somebody has a lower T T3 or free T3, we want that TSH to actually be higher to drive more production right? So that helps with the conversion. So I would think that if they had normal TSH or low TSH and they had a higher T4 and a lower free T3 and they had signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism, that's a bigger problem than the higher TSH. Yeah. So at least the body is do, trying to do something about it. It's not like it's a disease state where it can't function anymore. Correct. What are some of the other things, like if you could list or show some of the most important ones that cause this high inflammation, high oxidative stress, um, cellular hypothyroidism. I know you cover it in the book and we've mentioned a few things um, during the episode, but yeah, what are the most important things that you see driving health issues these days? Well, I think when we think about factors that people don't put a lot of attention to, one of those is definitely respiration. Mm. Just because of diet and lifestyles today, we have a tendency to have a higher inflammatory state. We look just look at the population is much heavier than we were, you know, even a couple decades ago. And so, when we're over heavier, we have more obesity. We have that'll trigger inflammation. Fat cells release inflammatory chemicals that trigger inflammation. But when we lay down at night our mucous membranes tend to swell due to that inflammation, nasal passages get cleared off, and we have a tendency to open our mouth to breathe. And that becomes an issue and a problem. When we, when we breathe through our mouth, we create tissue hypoxia. So we blow off more carbon dioxide. We may be more oxygen saturated, but to get the oxygen off the red blood cells into the tissues, you need to have sufficient levels of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. And so if we have lower levels of carbon dioxide because we're mouth breathing a lot, now the tissues starve of oxygen. That hypoxia causes problems at the cell level. It, it causes that cellular downregulation that creates some inflammation. It creates some oxidative stress. And the that is going to just downregulate thyroid hormones. So just the fact that somebody's mouth breathing through the night chronically a little bit, you know, like every night, that is going to start downregulating their cellular metabolism. And who's going to pay attention to that? Because almost everybody I talk to says they don't mouth breathe mm. when they sleep. How mm -hmm. do you know? I just know. Well, how do you, well, how, how, how do you know? Because I know, 
I know I would. My husband says I don't. Does he does he snore? Oh, he snores terribly. So he's not even paying any attention to no. how you sleep, right? And if you're waking up and he's staring at you while you're sleeping, that's creepy, right? You need a new husband. Right. So, but it happens to so many of us and we don't realize it. You know, there are cues that you're probably mouth breathing, right? Hey, I might wake up with a dry mouth. I have a lot of gum disease. I have a lot of cavities. Um, how about I wake up a lot at night to pee, right? Because when you breathe through your mouth, it changes the amount of vasopressin you have. So you create more urine. And so now when you go through your sleep and wake cycles, when you're in that lighter sleep, your bladder is being stretched because you're making more urine. You got to get up to pee. So almost everybody... When I ask them, do you, you know, do you mouth breathe? They say no. I'm like, how many times do you get up at night to pee? Oh, I'm up all the time at yeah. night to pee. Then you're mouth breathing probably. And do so, you recommend mouth taping? Absolutely. Yeah. Mouth taping and breathing exercises during the day to help retrain nasal breathing. And this is this it, it was a huge issue for me because I've got a deviated septum. I've broken my nose so many times. It should be fixed. I'm too now I'm a chicken to go get it fixed. But if I have the least a bit of inflammation going on, drink some alcohol, you know, my nasal passage will close and I'll want to open my mouth. So, you know, mouth taping is a thing that helps retrain kind of the ability to keep that shut at night. Um, and then doing a lot of nasal breathing exercises helped me significantly um, so that that aspect is not triggering problems. So that's a, I, I think that's a huge issue and something that somebody, you know, people can address on a daily basis. It doesn't cost you anything to slap some mouth tape on and do some breathing exercises. And that could dramatically change your cellular physiology and improve your tissue hypothyroidism and help you burn fat. Because remember, most people want to burn fat, right? They have extra body fat. They want to burn it, but it requires oxygen in the cell to burn fat efficiently. And I did a episode that was years ago now, but it was really great with Dr. Gelb. Um, mm -hmm. He talks all about, he's a, a dentist in New York and he talks all about mouth breathing, breathing products um, and orthodontics and everything like that. So um, definitely check that out. I'll link it in the show notes too. Um, another one I wanted to touch on because we didn't get a chance to cover it last time. And I know that you're really passionate about um, fitness and exercise and movement but I'm sure that your some of your patients and clients as well tend to go to the other extreme you're probably not working with people who don't really move at all it's probably people who are already trying to be healthy but some people take it to the extreme where it's another case of they think more is better when it comes to fitness yeah. And I've got people who are non-mobile, right? Don't do anything. And then you've got the people who are doing a lot of stuff and that's contributing to part of their issue. And it happened to me, overtraining, undersleeping, poor breathing. It was a trigger for my Hashimoto's. Um, but for the people who are, I think strength training is fantastic, but you have to allow for recovery. The older we get, the more, probably more time you're going to need for recovery. And part of that recovery requires optimal sleep, which requires proper breathing to be able to sleep well, to recover well. So all that piece goes. But where I see a lot of people get themselves in trouble is when they want to do cardiovascular training. Okay. And so they want to go for a run because the run is good. You know, if I run, I'm going to lose fat. Right. And the, the idea and the concept is good, except most people run at a pace that's anaerobic. 
okay? And when you run in an anaerobic pace, you shut down your body fat physio metabolism. Is that like slow steady state? So simple equation. Doing sprints? Yeah, well, no. If you're going to do sprints, that's fine. Short durations of sprint activity is great. That is anaerobic, but it's only a short period of time and then the body can recover. What gets people in trouble is the 40 minutes, 60 minutes longer of running at a slower pace, but it's too fast to be aerobic. Okay. So a simple equation is 170 to 180 minus your age. That's for most people as a, just a general rule, that's the good aerobic, optimal aerobic range. So the person who goes out, gets on their bike, right? They want to go for a bike ride because that's going to get me in shape. If they're going up and down hills, they may be pushing for two or three hours on their bike in an anaerobic state, which is pretty stressful on the physiology. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you see the amateur uh, weekend bike rider, you see gangs of them around here and I'm, I, I'm one of them, but I don't do as much of it as I used to because what you see is a lot of them have big bellies and you wonder, and then you watch them and what do they do? They ride on their bike, they're anaerobic for an extended period of time. And then they pull into the coffee shop, grab a coffee and some oatmeal, like lots of carbs and sugar and caffeine to fuel the next hour of their riding, right? Because they can't burn fat efficiently. And so this, I think, is one of those things that's really important when we're talking about physical fitness is if you're going to do cardiovascular endurance type activity. I think it's fantastic. I'm an endurance runner, so I totally understand, but get a heart rate monitor, monitor that range. This is not the perfect range for everybody because it's based on, this is a guy named Phil Moffatone came up with this value. We used to use 210 minus your age and Phil through his work has said that's way too high. And so 170, 180 minus your range. And if you go start going for a jog and you're over 180 minus your age, you need to slow down. And my clients are like, yeah, but then I'm only walking. Then then you're only walking. And you'll do that until you can build up a pace, walk and jog, walk and jog, and try and keep it in that 170 to 180. And over time, you'll do better. That's why you see more people in the fitness world start talking about, hey, you don't need to run. Just go for a walk. You'll burn more fat if you go for a walk. Because guess what? When you go for that walk, it's more likely you're going to be in that aerobic range. But if you spend two or three, two hours, an hour in an anaerobic state, you're putting a lot of stress on the system and that can create some stress on the physiology and then result in that cell danger, cell stress and trigger slowdown of your metabolism. That's so interesting. Like I, I always knew that some clients, especially female clients with hormone imbalances, they would often do better with walking or strength training as opposed to chronic long distance cardio, running, marathon training, all of that. But I've always just put it down to that nervous system stress response, but to know it's because of the breathing, um, the heart rate, aerobic um, versus anaerobic. Yeah, it's just really interesting. So I'm glad I've learned something. something yeah, think about it. If you're, if you're anaerobic, then you need to, how am I going to make glucose? Mm -hmm. I got to rev, rev up my cortisol. Yeah. Right. Excessive cortisol production or excessive epinephrine production, right. To get glucose upregulated, do that for an hour, mm -hmm. right? not for two hours, maybe not so good on the system. Right. Some people might be like 
so happy to hear what you just said. They're like, I don't have to go running anymore. I can go for a walk. But it can yeah. be the case. But you, I mean, so it, what you do for physical training really depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? If you're going to run a marathon, you have to train for a marathon, then you could do appropriate heart rate training, but you still have to train for a marathon, right? But if your overall goal is, Hey, I just want to be healthy and fit, then do strength training. Definitely do some type of slow cardio could be walking, could be jogging if, if you, but stay in that range, do some high intensity like occasional sprints because we need to do that in life anyway you need to be able to do something cut go up sprint up and down some hills for you know for a bit um do stretch strengthening flexibility mobility and postural training all things that are going to be make you healthier just on a day in day out basis so you can do the things you need to do if, you know, if you're going to climb a mountain, you got to train for that. If you're going to do a CrossFit, you got to train for that. But that's different than trying to train just to be healthy and fit, right? If you're going to be a really good CrossFitter, uh, even though they say they're the fittest people on earth, uh, I would argue that, right? Most of those are not the fittest people on earth, right? You know, you have the the weird people that are super fit, but most high intense athletes have other issues going on with their health and physiology in an effort to be this elite looking athlete. Yeah. I was talking about that with my friend the other day and her response, cause she gets all backlash saying they are healthy. Like they have really low heart rate, um, like low body fat percentage. And she says like, why do they have, why do athletes have to retire when they're 30 years old then? And they're like, Oh, like, makes sense. <laughs> if they were yeah, like I super mean, fit, they could go forever, but it's obviously having a massive toll on their body. Yeah. You look at these, you know, the mixed martial art community, they look super fit, right? But it's crushing the women to try and mm-hmm. constantly suck weight. It's messing up their sex hormones and it's messing up their GI tract and their physiology all in an in, in effort to be an elite fighter. But that's not healthy, especially when you're getting punched in the head regularly, right? So, we have to be careful, you know, there's, and there's people that look, they, you know, they have a six pack abs and they're like, and they look, we, we, we think that's the look of health. And really that's enhanced many times. And we don't see behind the curtain where, oh yeah, they have IBS and they have uh, their hormone, they're on sec, they're on, you know, hormone replacement therapy because their hormones are all screwed up, right? You just see yeah, the get, picture. We get to see the lab results and they're not great. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's not a healthy person, right? No, they they have the look, but they're not healthy. Absolutely not. I want to finish up with just a few questions. You actually answered one before. I was going to ask you something that you've changed your mind about in the health world, but you covered like a few examples about mm-hmm. how diet things change over the years. So my other two questions were, what's something that you've been into lately? So this could be like a book that you're reading, um, could be like a documentary that you've watched, something completely random, non-health related, but something that you're, you've been enjoying that you want to share? Well, that's uh, a great question. And this is, maybe this is a sad state for me, but uh, I am, what, what excites me on a daily basis is doing this geeky research stuff and, and looking at stuff, you know? So right now I'm a little, I'm creating the course mm-hmm. based on the book. Um, I'm on a deeper dive into 
the what's going on with female hormones and PCOS and a much deeper dive into that and probably do a presentation in the new year. Um, and then outside of that geeky stuff, you know, I, for what everybody, whatever everybody wants to think, I'm an outdoorsman, I'm a hunter. This is my big season coming mm -hmm. up. So that is my, you know, like people talk about meditation, everything else for me, sitting out in the woods yeah. for six, eight hours, you know, is it's like meditation, right? It is just no, no plug in, no research, just sitting with nature, doing what I'm doing out there. And I think for me, that's like my, it's a good recharge time. How many things um, like fishing for me, I'd be like, sat fishing all day my granddad does that like literally mm -hmm. every day and like how do you do it he goes at 4 a.m and for him that's his meditation absolutely and I, I had a friend once who said there's no way i could sit in the in a tree stand for eight hours i'm like it's you need if you couldn't you need to and i said it's not about there's you know there there people there's some people that have um that are anti-fishing anti-hunting all those things but I think for those of us in the community, it gives us a greater connection to our environment. It gives us mm -hmm. a greater connection to our food source. And there's something, man, it's something emotional that really impacts you when you are thankful that, hey, I had the blessings of being able to harvest my own food. I'm going to use everything out of this animal as to nourish me. And I know I know it came off the land. There's something really spiritual and emotional yeah, about it. Um, all of the other people who are like hunting sharks and whales and just for fun or for fashion, that's what gives it a bad rap. But it's when people who, like yourself, you, you appreciate that more than probably someone like me who goes to the grocery store or the, the farm shop and just buys it. Like it's, it, it, it has a different, it does have a different meaning when you know, man, it took me 40 hours in the woods to get that. And that makes me think, especially here in the U.S., about our time. Like these got, these people from your country and other countries that came over here and walked out into this wilderness and said, mm -hmm. yep, we're going to figure this out. And you're like, Think about, it. I was yeah, into, you know, crazy. I'm in 40 hours to get <laughs> an animal and these guys. So, and these are people that are relying. I can go to the grocery store if I don't have, get some meat, but these people didn't have a grocery store to go to. Right. So man, it makes you, it gives, it gives you a new perspective of what early people really had to work through. So it does, I think gives you a different perspective on our nutrition and, and, and our, and food and a deep respect for the animals that we have and how to conserve them and leave them, have them available, um, for future generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Is there a product that you couldn't live without? So this could be an appliance, uh, a personal care product, a supplement, a herb. I, I would say from a, a supplemental standpoint, as much as I am um, do functional medicine, I use supplementation. Um, I'm a minimalist. Mm. The There are some products uh, that I use pretty consistently. Um, and I, I, one company that I really like their products, that's US Enzymes. And I've actually worked with them to formulate uh, a sulforaphane product called sulforazyme. 
and for your listeners, so what is sulforaphane? Sulforaphane, what's the benefit? Sulforaphane comes from plants and the most nutrient sulforaphane dense product is broccoli sprouts. Okay. So when you eat a broccoli sprout, two pieces, two things come together and produce this thing called sulforaphane. And the benefit of sulforaphane is that it's one of the best food upregulators of something called NRF2. And NRF2 is the um, master anti-inflammatory, antioxidant detoxifying enzyme. So when we activate NRF2, it turns on about 200 pathways. And that's significant. So most people have heard about glutathione. Hey, take glutathione, but that's one pathway. And there's the potential if you're loading yourself with a bunch of glutathione that you may downregulate NRF2. So sulforaphane has is the best upregulator. Within 15 minutes of getting sulforaphane in the system, it's at the brain. Um, so it can really upregulate the system. The beauty of it is it's got a really short half-life, so it's almost impossible to become toxic. And the literature and the research on it is really good and growing. NIH does a ton of work on sulforaphane and its benefits. And, um, and so I'm a, a fan of that, and I'm, and I'm a fan of US Enzymes like, and Master Supplements. Um, hormonal cancers, things like breast cancer. If you think about why, like somebody's yeah. like, well, uh, I know some some people in the autistic community started giving the sulforaphane to their their autistic clients and they're like they're seeing these nonverbals go to verbal and they're like why why does this work and i'm like it's super simple when you push the nrf2 system you're pushing a lot of these anti-inflammatory antioxidant systems that help anybody who's got oxidative stress and inflammation because it's turning on the pathways that help produce those things naturally and it works differently than taking an ibuprofen or an or an anti-inflammatory we don't want to suppress the immune system we just want to make sure that those inflammatory products they they get released but we also metabolize them fairly quickly so it's like a more holistic broad spectrum supplement rather than just taking like one thing to target one problem yeah, I talk about this in a presentation I do. Like if you take glutathione and once you use it, now it's a free radical. Now you have to have catalase to help break that down. And then you need something else to break the next thing down, right? So if we can do something that turns on both the the enzymes production, these anti-inflammatory antioxidant production and support the recycling pathways, that's probably the best yeah, option. Might as well go with that. Yeah. Amazing. So I re- Great. That's a really good idea. So cool. And last question, like where can people get the product um, and where can people find you from your social media website and your new book? So uh, Rejuvagen Center is my website. Uh, on Instagram, it's Dr. Eric, I think it's Dr. Balcavage or Dr. Eric Balcavage. I don't even remember anymore. I'm going to link um, all of these as well, yeah. by the way. Uh, I guess I'm most prolific kind of on Instagram, which is funny uh, because probably right before we met, I didn't even have an Instagram account. And, I think you were, you, know, ju- you were, because I mentioned in the episode, like I've been enjoying, I think you just gotten into more education on that. Mm-hmm. So I did comment, I was enjoying it at the time, but yeah, you produced tons more videos and clips of your podcast on there. So that's like the, that's where most of my content lies. And then uh, obviously the book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Balboa Press has it on their website, but I think Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble are probably the most common. Uh, so you can get it there. And then people can look forward to, uh, we're doing a physician's course um, in 
the end of October, beginning of November, we're, we're going to be having a live seminar in, in Minneapolis and then film it. And so then we'll have a live physician p- practitioners course. And then we'll be looking to do a, a lay course based on a lot of the principles in the book, especially part three. So a busy few months for you. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. Let's hopefully it doesn't turn into like another three years. Let's, uh, let's hope. a little bit more smoothly. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me again. It was great to catch up with you. Um, and thank you for covering more information on the thyroid i would highly recommend the book as i said it's really just a the thyroid bible if someone's brand new to it or if someone's like slightly knowledgeable i'd say like i was um yeah you're gonna find something out of there and yeah thank you for joining me again today well thanks for having me i really appreciate it i really hope you enjoyed this episode if you did i would love for you to leave me a rating and review on your podcast app as this helps to support the show and it allows it to reach more people with this valuable information. Come and say hi over on Instagram. I'm at Viva Natural Health. And if you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for tons more free resources and to discover how I could support you further. I currently offer one-on-one consultation packages if you want my top level support, then more affordable group programs and self-paced online courses. So there really is something for everyone. If you're ready to change and get some answers, but aren't sure which option would be best, take that first step today and apply for a free enrollment call on my website. And we'll discuss the best steps for you to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony. Enjoy the rest of your day and I'll see you back here next week for another episode.